Good morning, church family, and uh, if you, this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, we're delighted to have the opportunity to worship with you today. My name is Randy, and I'm the, the lead minister here at the church, and um, so as a part of our worship service, we have a, a singing portion, and uh, now we're about to enter the teaching portion, and to prepare us for that, I'd like you to turn to your Bibles to the New Testament book of John, John chapter 18. And we're in a series of messages uh, called Encounters with Jesus. And we've just been looking at episodes in the life of Christ where he had important conversations uh, with all kinds of people. And this morning we're going to overhear a conversation that Jesus had with um, a Roman governor, a politician, Pontius Pilate. And uh, so if, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to John 18 and we're going to begin at verse 28. Um, uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, please feel free to take the copy that's in the pouch in front of you and receive it as a gift from our church family. And you'll find John 18, 28 uh, on page 904, page 904. I'm going to read verses 28 to 38. Then they led Jesus... From the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Who's they? That's the chief priests. That's the enemies of Christ. From the house of Caiaphas. That's the, that's the high priest. He is, he is a bad apple. Caiaphas. Okay. To the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not want to enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. This is God's word. Have you ever been paralyzed by indecision? Have you ever been paralyzed by indecision? 
It's a bad habit for good leadership. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor for the Lutheran Church in Germany during Nazi Germany, he lived in a day of indecision in Europe of 1934. Everywhere he looked, Bonhoeffer saw Christian indecisiveness. Everyone seemed to be indecisive to Bonhoeffer. Uh, Christian pastors there in Germany, uh, Christian organizations. It just seemed that indecisiveness was the day. Everyone but Hitler. And Hitler's chokehold on the German church was almost complete. And no one seemed willing to act. And Bonhoeffer and his colleagues and friends finally did. And put together what was called the Confessing Church, which was a movement uh, set to declare itself independent uh, from the coercions of the Third Reich. On April the 7th, 1934, uh, Bonhoeffer wrote a letter, uh, and it's in this letter that we learn about the perils of indecision. Listen to this letter. Bonhoeffer wrote, a decision must be made at some point, and it's no good waiting indefinitely for a sign from heaven that will solve the difficulty without further trouble. To procrastinate simply because you're afraid of erring when others, and I mean our brethren in Germany, must make infinitely more difficult decisions every day seems to me almost to run counter to love. And then he says this. This is such an important quote. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. I wonder what you think about that. Because this seems to be an appropriate quote as we consider the encounter that Jesus had with Pontius Pilate. Pilate, this Roman governor who presided over the trial of Christ and authorized his execution. Pilate wavered. And his wavering and his indecisiveness led to a wrong decision, a decision that was made with neither faith nor love. What I want us to do this morning as we consider this conversation that Jesus had with Pilate, I think it's important before we even look to the Scriptures to understand a little bit of the backstory. What's going on in Pilate's life that we can glean from extra-biblical history that'll help us understand the trial over which he presided? So I want to talk about some of that historical background. I find it fascinating and very helpful. But then I want us to actually get into the text and, uh, and listen to this conversation that Jesus had uh, in Jesus' trial with Pilate. And I what I want you to see, and I'll reiterate this, is that Pilate goes out to converse with the enemies of Jesus, and then he goes back in to the governor's mansion to converse with Jesus, and then he goes back out to converse with the enemies of Jesus, and then he goes back in. There's seven scenes in this conversation, and each scene involves Pilate going 
outside and then going inside. Outside to deal with the darkness, inside to deal with the light. And he's trying to reconcile the two. But they are irreconcilable. And he doesn't get that. And as a result, he wavers and makes a decision that culminates in the crucifixion of Christ. We'll listen in on that conversation only to learn that it's really not Jesus who's on trial. It's Pilate who is on trial. And we're going to see what kind of a person Pilate is as a result of his encounter with Christ. And what we'll see from this is really a, what I hope will be a helpful definition of what unwavering is. Because unwavering is simply when your life is anchored to the life of Christ. There it is. Unwavering is what I become when my life is anchored in the life of Christ. So let's first talk about Pilate and what we learn about him from history. Um, so extra-biblical history tells us that Pontius Pilate rose in society because of a wealthy and influential friend named Sejanus. Uh, back in the first century and in the Roman uh, way of life, a person advanced basically on the coattails of another person who kind of took them in and uh, kind of mentored them and vouched for them and made introductions for them. And, of course, it was kind of a quid pro quo because uh, once that person would achieve a particular goal because he was on the coattail of this sponsor, why that person was expected to honor his sponsor and so on. And Sejanus was the person... Uh, uh, upon whose coattails Pilate was able to just uh, advance and be promoted. And Sejanus was important because he was the head of Caesar's Praetorian Guard, which would be equivalent of being the, the director of like the secret service of the president. He was a very important person, a very influential person. And so to have Someone like that in Pilate's life was really good for Pilate. And so, so Pilate was able to, with those connections, maneuver his way through Roman politics. And he was finally promoted uh, to be the governor of the most hostile strip of real estate in the Roman Empire, Israel. And keeping the peace in Israel was as difficult in the first century as it is today. But what's interesting to me is how extra-biblical history affirms the fact of Pilate's governorship. And so, for instance, Tacitus, who was a uh, 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 late 1st century, early 2nd century Roman historian, not a Christian, uh, Tacitus said this in uh, his uh, history of Rome, Christus, Jesus, suffered the extreme penalty, that's crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, that means governor, Pontius Pilate. Isn't that interesting? And then there's another historian uh, by the name of Flavius Josephus, who in the late first century had these in his history book about Pontius Pilate uh, and Jesus. About that time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. 
For he was one who brought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as gladly accept the truth. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. Pilate, there it is, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had him condemned to be crucified. So that's Josephus in the late first century. And then I just want to show you a piece of archaeological evidence. Sarah and I got to see this about 20 years ago on our visit to Israel. And this is called the Pilate Stone. And it was found uh, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel at a place called Caesarea. And uh, it has an inscription which substantiates Pilate's governorship in that era. And that particular stone has been dated to the very time of Pilate's tenure, A.D. 26 to 36. And when you look at this Pilate stone, you can see uh, portions uh, uh, in uh, Latin of the inscription. So the top line contains the word Tiberius, and then line two is Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and then prefect, that's governor, of Judea. So I find this fascinating confirmation of the Bible, Which means when we open God's word, we're not dealing with mythology here. We're dealing with history. And so Pilate, Pilate made a horrible first impression when he became the governor of this strip of real estate, Israel. What happened was Pilate, uh, under the cover of darkness, tried to sneak in Roman standards and shields outside the governor's residence in Jerusalem. And he did this in the darkness because he knew that if he had done it in broad daylight, uh, the citizens of Jerusalem would have really been upset. So he tried to get away with it by doing it at night. And then uh, once they were all set up around the governor's mansion, why they would just kind of, they'd be a little bit mad and then they would deal with it. Well, they saw it, and they became a lot a bit mad. And they took this as blatant idolatry. And they confronted Pilate about it. And Pilate called his guards, which surrounded these angry Hebrew people. And at last, Pilate just threatened to kill them. And when he threatened to kill them, they took the collars of their robes, and they exposed their necks and said, then go ahead and do it. And Pilate blinked. And he wasn't about to carry out this threat. They knew it. And so he took down the Roman shields. Strike one. Well, then Pilate tried to raise money for an aqueduct to, to, to pipe in fresh water to the city of Jerusalem. Well, who could be against that? Well, I mean, Jerusalem wasn't. They thought it was a fantastic idea until they learned that Pilate was financing the project with temple funds. (laughs) There was a huge skirmish. Pilate told uh, the Roman guards, well, just, you know, hit him a little bit. (laughs) Well, they hit him a lot of bit. And people were killed, and it was messy. Strike two. So Pilate didn't have a good track record with Jerusalem. And, and Tiberius tended to micromanage his empire. And so he set up this grievance procedure by which uh, the people, especially in Jerusalem, could actually circumvent 
Pilate and didn't just bring their complaints straight to Rome. And Tiberius was paranoid enough to look into those matters. Well, on top of all of this, Sejanus, the guy that I told you about, who was Pilate's patron, who kind of his sponsor and everything, Sejanus was executed. So now nobody has Pilate's back. That's what I'm saying. And he's got two strikes against him already. This is very important information as we turn to John 18, 28. Jesus has just been convicted by his religious enemies of blasphemy. And he's been railroaded uh, through a series of illegal trials. And they want him dead. That's it. So they rush to Pilate for execution. Now, Pilate's workday, as many of the government leaders in Rome back then, their, their workday would begin like at 4 a.m. so that they could get all of their paperwork and administrative work done and in the afternoon go to the Roman spa. That was their day. So the chief priests, the enemies of Christ, realized that if they did not get to Pilate at the beginning of the day, well, he would be unavailable for the rest of the day, and then the Passover would come and go, and uh, their momentum would be stalled. So that's why it says in verse 28 that they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So they do not want to enter the residence of this infidel, and thus make themselves ritually impure for the most religious feast in their nation's history. Isn't it ironic? The religious enemies of Christ took painstaking measures to keep themselves ritually clean in order to eat the Passover lamb, while at the same time seeking to kill the true lamb of God, whose death would be the true Passover Verse 29 says, Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? You know, why are you here? Well, he's a lawbreaker. That's why we're here. Well, what's he done? Doesn't matter what he's done. He's a lawbreaker. We don't need to get into details. We just want him dead. Figure out a way. They did not like each other. Verse 30 says, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And verse 31 Pilate uses irony, sarcasm. Will you judge him yourself? Oh, wait, you can't because you want to put him to death. And you can't do that either because you need me, right? Yeah, that's the way it works here. So Pilate agreed to see Jesus. And Pilate was expecting to see a revolutionary, an extremist, a terrorist. Instead, he sees a weary, sleepless, stress-worn peasant rabbi. In fact, verse 33 literally says, Pilate seeing Jesus, verse 33 literally says, you are the king of the Jews? You? And Jesus responded, is that a question or a confession? Do, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me. And for a moment, the roles are reversed. The one who is questioned becomes the questioner. The prisoner becomes the judge. 
Pilate retorts, do I look Jewish? What have you done? And Jesus tells him, not about what he's done, but about where he's from. He tells about his kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is not like the kingdom of Rome. The kingdom of the coming Messiah, the kingdom of God does not require spears or shields or armies. It is from another realm. It's based on truth. Verse 37, Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus replied, you say that I am, which is an indirect way of saying, yes, you said it. That's why I came to this world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is offering an invitation to Pilate. Pilate, I am inviting you to enter the kingdom of truth. I'm inviting life change. I am inviting you to anchor your life in my life and so become unwavering and unshakable. The question, Pilate, is this. Are you the kind of person who is attracted to truth? And Pilate responds with the question that all of us have heard uh, about his life. Verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Now, just, I mean, that's shocking to hear that kind of question coming from someone like Pilate. And here's why. You know it's the government's business to determine truth. Government is all about defining what truth is, defining reality, and then therefore making decisions which is called governing, based on such reality. So, so for Pilate to ask the question, what is truth? That would be like a certified public accountant asking, well, what is arithmetic? Or a physician asking, well, what is health? Or a mechanic asking, well, what is a tune-up? Or a master carpenter saying, well, what is level? Pilate's asking the question, but it's the wrong question. Because Jesus' life was never, ever about the question, what is truth? As if Christianity is a set of principles, a list of statements. Rather, Jesus is all about answering the better question, not what is truth, but who is truth. Jesus is offering Pilate himself, but Pilate's not interested. So he goes back out and he tells the religious Leaders that whatever threat Jesus is to them, he is no threat to the Roman Empire. And therefore, he says he's innocent. I find no guilt in him. Verse 38. But Pilate's kind of wily. So he kind of wants to cut a deal. There's this Passover custom of pardoning one prisoner on death row. And Pilate thought, well, okay. I'm going to go around, the, I'm going to do an end around with these religious leaders and go directly to the people and let them choose between Jesus and this bad apple named Barabbas, who was a terrorist, like an ISIS in Israel. Surely the sheep will choose the shepherd over the thief. That's not what happened, is it? Verse 40. They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. To Pilate's surprise, the religious enemies had already worked the crowds. The people wanted the killer, not 
the Christ. And so they demanded, get this, they demanded to release the very person who had broken the laws that they were accusing Christ of. So Pilate had to call an audible. He had to think quickly on his feet. Okay, okay, what am I going to do now? All right, all right, okay. Okay, I'll rough him up, and, and, and I'll have him flogged. And when they see a half-naked, half-dead man dressed like a clown in king's clothes, surely they'll have sympathy for him. That's what's behind verses 19, uh, chapter 19, 1 through 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. And then Pilate brought Jesus back out to the crowd. You see, he's going inside and outside, inside and outside. Look! He's just a man. Ichi homo. Behold, the man. Look, here's your terrorist. He's no terrorist. He's a, just a puny peasant. He's just a man. That's Pilate's position. But remember, the apostle John is giving us this gospel. And here's what John is saying. Here is the man the God-man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By Him all things were made. And He came into His own, and His own received Him not. The glory of Almighty God, clothed in flesh, but they were missing Him. And to Pilate's surprise, they scream louder, crucify him. Pilate says, you crucify him. You want me to judge him, but you won't accept my verdict. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God there. That's why they want him dead. And suddenly, Pilate was spooked. Verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. What's that about? Well, Pilate, you know, he wasn't religious, but he was superstitious. And he knew of Roman legends where the gods had sometimes journeyed to earth in human flesh, cloaked, stealth. Had he just flogged his creator Verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. You will not speak to me, he demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And Christ's body stinging from the scourging. He shakes his head, oh no you don't, oh no you don't. Verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And then Jesus makes a reference to this high priest, Caiaphas, when he says, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. In other words, Jesus is trying to say, Pilate, there's still a way out. You're not entirely liable. You can still choose the kingdom of truth. You didn't start this, but you can end this right now. It's crunch time. It's decision time. Trust me, trust me. Verse 12, but then on, Pilate sought 
to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And finally, the crowds play their trump card. You see that phrase, Caesar's friend or friend of Caesar? Well, that's a, that was a title worn by dignitaries. And certain governors wore it, and those who had it wanted to keep it. And you remember what I told you earlier about the grievance procedure? The enemies of Christ put Pilate in a corner. You either crucify Jesus or we're going to Tiberias. And he's going to hear everything. And you know he'll look into it. You know he'll look into those shields. You know uh, how you tried to embezzle us. We'll talk about that too. The count's two and oh, man. You don't want Tiberius hearing that you released a rival king, do you? You don't want to get recalled to Rome, do you? So play ball. Verse 13 says, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. In Aramaic, it's called Gabbatha. And verse 14 says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Huh. Now, what's the point behind verse 14? Two reasons. Number one, it's an eyewitness detail. The apostle John was there. It's an eyewitness account. This really happened. And the reference is a reference to the time of day that Passover lambs were being slaughtered and the slaughter of the Passover lamb was about to take place. Pilate said to the Jews in verse 14, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And then they spoke the unspeakable. The chief priests, the religious leaders, answered, We have no king but Caesar. Oh my goodness. To, to, to kill Jesus, the chief priests pledge allegiance to Rome informing Pilate that they're more Roman than he is. And Pilate relented, verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And that's Pilate and the trial of Jesus. But Pilate's really the one on trial here. And he wavered. And why? why? Why did Pilate waver? And what made Christ unwavering? Well, first let's talk about Pilate. Why did he waver? That's easy. He wavered, he waffled because he couldn't make up his mind. Right? I mean, he's the one on trial. He's the one going back and forth. He's the one going outside and inside and outside, wavering between Jesus and the enemies of Jesus, trying to reconcile the irreconcilable. He tries to go out to deal with the enemies of Christ, and it's, it's angry, it's intense, it's irrational, and it's false. But inside, 
Jesus is calm and sensible and truthful. And Pilate's problem is that he won't commit. He won't decide for Christ, and thus, by default, he chooses against him. And Pilate is every person who takes the middle ground in a contest that is total. Who puts basketball goals up at half court? Know of anybody who scores a touchdown at the 50-yard line? See, that's the game Pilate wants to play, but there is no such game, is there? He offers Barabbas, the people scream for Christ. He proposes a whip, they demand a cross. He declares Christ innocent, they accuse him of treason. Four times he tries to release Christ, four times they refuse. Three times, count them, three times, the judge pronounces him not guilty. Um, Pilate's own wife sent word of Christ's innocence. Doesn't want to waver, but he doesn't want to choose. This whole passage is just about Pilate going back and forth and back and forth. He wants the best of both worlds, but Christ is only offering him his. And when he finally stands up, it's too late. Pilate had a sign made over the cross of Jesus, and the chief priest objected. Do not write, the king of the Jews, but rather that this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate firmly said, what I have written, I have written. And someone once said that a good word spoken too late is as bad as no word spoken at all. And the lesson of Pilate's life is so clear. <laughs> Two masters are too much. You can only serve one, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, you can't serve both God and stuff. You can't. You can't. That's why he wavered. But why did Jesus stand unwavering? What made him, un why was Jesus unintimidated by Pilate? Here's why. And it is the key to unwavering faith in your life and in my life. It, it's simply this, church family, unwavering faith belongs to those who decisively commit to the sovereignty of their heavenly Father. Unwavering faith belongs to those who decisively commit to the sovereignty of their heavenly Father. The, the most important the most important words Jesus speaks to Pilate are in verse 11 when he said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now hear what Jesus did not say. He did not say that Pilate did not have the authority to crucify him. That's not what Jesus said. Rather, he said that the authority that Pilate had was from above which makes it really authoritative. Pilate has the God-granted authority to crucify Jesus. Pilate meant the cross for evil, but God meant it for good. All Christ's enemies gathered together with their God-given authority to, according to Acts 4.28, do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. 
They sinned, but through their sinning, God saved. And this is why Jesus was unwavering. Pilate's authority over Christ is subordinate to God's authority over Pilate. And Jesus was unwavering, not because Pilate's will is powerless, but because Pilate's will is guided by God's sovereignty. Not because Jesus isn't in the hands of Pilate's fear, but because Pilate is in the hands of Jesus' sovereign Father. Which means, which means had Pilate in fact, release Jesus. Have you ever wondered that? What would have happened? You know, kind of, a, kind of an alternative history rabbit trail, if you mind. What if he would have said, I said he's innocent, and he's innocent, and furthermore, I believe. Jesus, I will follow you. What, what would have happened then? Huh? I already know what would happen. Jesus would have looked him in the eyes and said, you choose to follow me? Yes. And I'm your king? Yes. Good. Now put me on that cross so that I can die for your sins. Because either way, Jesus was going through the cross. Revelation chapter 13, 8 says, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus' life was given, not taken. And that's the source of our unwavering faith. Our unwavering faith, our unwavering trust, our unwavering confidence comes. These come not from realizing that our enemies are powerless, but that our Heavenly Father is sovereign over them. And that's why we can anchor our life to Christ's life. And that's still true today, church. That's why we can face difficult situations and difficult people and difficult health and difficult jobs in the face of your deepest difficulty Romans 8 rings true that in spite of trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or death we can anchor our lives in the life of Christ because in all of these things we are promised that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. By the way, six years after Christ died, Pilate got his third strike. <laughs> he did something that set the city off. They griped to Caesar, and he was relieved of duty and summoned to Rome to explain his actions, and on the way there, on the way to Rome to report to Tiberius, Tiberius died. Pilate's case was tabled, but he wasn't allowed to return to Israel. And tradition says that he committed suicide. Oh, and by the time John wrote his gospel... You remember the religious enemies, the ones who said, we have no king but Caesar? Well, you know what? By the time John wrote his gospel, they had, no, they had nothing but Caesar because in the year A.D. 70, Caesar came and leveled the temple. And as for the church, oh, here we are unwavering 
our lives anchored to the life of Christ. And so I close with this wonderful, wonderful quote from an unbeliever, the Tacitus guy. Here's the sentence, and then I'm going to pray. And the tribe of Christians, so called after Jesus, has still to this day not disappeared. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you that our life is anchored in your life, Lord Jesus. That you lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we should have died. And thank you that in your death and burial and resurrection and ascension and the seating upon the throne next to your heavenly Father, our heavenly Father, you have sent your Holy Spirit upon your people. And now, by your word and your decree, we are the temple of the living God. Your life, through our life, reaching the lives of people who matter to you. Thank you. Thank you. God's people said,